Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-host, Haley Knopf. Hey, Amber. Happy to be here. I'm glad to have you because we don't have Alex with us this week, but he'll be back next week. We do have a lot to talk about, though. One thing I wanted to mention right off the bat, like the rest of the world, we are also tracking and writing stories about several developing legal things around former President Donald Trump. I uh, just wanted to mention that so that if people are really interested in the Law 360 take on those stories and our look at the subpoena that happened at Mar-a-Lago and his pleading the fifth in a separate case in New York, we have coverage of that. But we're not going to talk about it on today's show because it's pretty fast moving. We have some other big things to cover. But just wanted to mention if anybody's looking for that, head on over to our website. Yeah. And you guys, I'm really excited to hear the the interview you did today. Um, and we also... It's a unique, special occasion because producer Steve joined you on that. Yeah, that's right. Uh, our very own Stephen Trader uh, takes to the mic this week. Um, since Alex is out, we got a little lift from him to come on with... Uh, we have a great guest. He's, his name is Joseph Hanna. He's a partner at Goldberg Sagala, who is a sports law pro, to talk about the big battle brewing in the golf world. So I definitely needed Steve's help since I as is canon on this show, barely understand sports. Uh, but I do understand <laughs> competition law, and that's what the case is about. So Steve and this great outside guest are on with me, and you'll hear that a little later in the show. So excited to hear that, because I too, I mean, in general, I am a sports fan, but I'm embarrassed to say I'm really not up to speed on golf. It's just, is it because it's my you blind watch it on spot. TV, it's all whispers? Does it just put you right to sleep? Because that's what it does for me. But I promise our listeners, despite that like that perception of golf. Oh, thank you. I've, yeah. Workshop that. Uh, no, but despite the perception that golf is some sleepy sport that is just on every Sunday afternoon or whatever, the, the fight going on between the PGA and this upstart league backed by Saudi Arabia is getting really intense. And so even if you're not a big sports fan, this is really going to be a case to watch. It is. But so before we get into that, we have a couple other stories to talk about. First, um, we actually, we have a pretty interesting conviction out of the Northern District of California this week. A former Twitter employee was found guilty of spying on behalf of the Saudi government Specifically, prosecutors said he looked up Twitter user data on users who were critical of the Saudi royal family. And that information was like emails and phone numbers, pretty confidential stuff. And then he provided that to Saudi officials. Um, according to prosecutors, it's a tale of power, greed, and lies. Loved that language from them. Uh, uh, it sounds like the tagline <laughs> of a Lifetime movie, but sure. Oh, yeah. absolutely. According to me, it's just another example of why social media is terrifying. And I am always tempted to just throw yeah. everything Close into the Pacific. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. I mean, that is, you know, I made a joke about the power, greed, and lies line. But the issue itself is really interesting about who has access to user data and and how that could get passed off to people that should not have that access. So who was this guy and how did he get things like people's emails and phone numbers? Yeah. Ahmad Abuamo worked for Twitter from 2013 to 2015. And his job was to help notable account users in the Middle East and North Africa with their accounts. A position I 
had no idea existed, like specifically for if you're, you know, a big name user. Um, and so he like answered their questions and troubleshooted their concerns. And that allowed him to look up user data. And prosecutors say that the spying kicked off when a Saudi delegation toured Twitter's headquarters in 2014. And Abu Amo met with the crown prince's right-hand man. And the pair hit it off. They met up again in London later that year. And uh, Abu Amo walked away from that meeting with a luxury watch worth tens of thousands of dollars. It was after that meeting that he started sharing the user data with the Saudis, according to the government. And ultimately, he was paid $300,000 for this. Okay, I know sometimes lawsuits take a while, but you mentioned that this actually started back in 2014, and that does seem like a pretty long time. We're in 2022 now. So when was he charged? And can you explain a bit about the timeline here? Absolutely. Yeah. So this alleged conduct happened in 2014, 2015. Then he actually left Twitter. So Abu Amo's relationship with the Saudi government didn't emerge until several years after that. The FBI just kind of showed up on his doorstep in 2018 with questions. Particularly, they were asking about this $100,000 payment that he received from the Saudi official. And at the time, Abu Amo told the FBI that it was compensation for digital media strategies assistance. He, he was like, yeah, I left Twitter and now I'm a consultant. And so I was working with him on, on this other stuff. And when he was asked to prove that, I love this part, he allegedly like hastily excused himself from the room and then just like went on his computer and made a fake invoice. An A for effort. Oh, so like uh, <laughs> suddenly word is opened up and he's typing in consultations to the Saudi government. Yeah, yeah. And I imagine, you know, if they so much as like open the PDF and see when it was created, it was like 10 minutes yeah, ago or something. Metadata, sure. But in any event, he was eventually charged in 2019. And he was actually charged alongside another Twitter employee who he allegedly had introduced to that Saudi official and who kept working with the Saudi official after he left Twitter. Um, and then also another Saudi national who used to run a social media management company was also charged. Um, but both of them fled the country um, and they're still they're still chilling. So the trial only involved Abu Amo. Okay, so, you know, we're painting a pretty negative portrait of what he allegedly did, but obviously there's a defense at play here. So what did they argue on his behalf? His big argument was that while there may be a case against his co-defendants, he wasn't part of any conspiracy. He said he never agreed to commit a crime with any of them. The government didn't show any evidence of calls between him and his co-defendants. Um, his lawyer, very artfully, um, in my opinion, compared the government's case to the carefully curated and filtered posts that people put on social media. Here's a quote <laughs> from her. It's the same thing with the government's case that they put on at this trial. Bits and pieces that they have specifically taken out of context and tried to assemble to try and create the picture they want you to see. But just like people's social media profiles, that's not the full story. That's the kind of line that would be great in in any, you know, opening or closing argument. That's really, I mean, it's compelling. But he has been convicted of some stuff here. So what would happen there? 
he has. So ultimately, the jury convicted him of secretly acting as an agent of the Saudi government, wire fraud, money laundering, and records falsification. The jury did clear him on a few other charges, which just included more wire fraud and aiding and abetting his co-defendants. So the verdict was reached after two days of deliberation. And what's interesting is one juror actually kind of shed some light on what was happening behind the scenes when she responded to counsel questions in open court after the verdict was shared. She said that jurors initially struggled to find him guilty of acting as an agent of the Saudi government because there was no direct evidence of him sharing the user data. But ultimately, it was those payments and the watch (laughs) and, you know, the fact that he was trying to hide all of that. That's what led the jury to make that call. That's a really interesting real world case, but it does have a connection to social media, things out out there in the computers. And um, I kind of want to turn to that topic for our second story today. Are you worried about the singularity coming for us all one day and that the machines will rule Terminator style? Because that's what I want to talk about. Amber, yes. Every night I lie awake wondering, will tomorrow be the day? This won't help. Um, I have a quick (laughs) story today that may be one of the first skirmishes in that humans versus machine war to come. It's about whether an invention said to have been created by artificial intelligence can be patented by that AI. There is an official answer here. I'm glad we have an official answer because we covered this in the past, didn't we? I think I was actually maybe the one who covered a prior development because I distinctly remember researching the name of this AI. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure you've covered this. So have our crack um, IP reporters here at Law360. This has been going on for several years. We did at the very early stages of the question of can a robot have a patent we recorded an episode all the way back pre-pandemic. It's number 117 if anybody wants to look it up. It's from 2019. We talked about patent applications being filed for inventions that purportedly were created entirely by artificial intelligence. We're much further along now, though. Late last week, the Federal Circuit definitively said only human beings can qualify as inventors. That rejected a researcher's bid to name an artificial intelligence machine he created as an inventor on two patents. This is a precedential ruling by a three-judge panel at the Fed Circuit. It's the latest in a string of decisions by courts all around the world and patent offices that have held that Stephen Thaler's AI system, and here's what you looked up, Haley, it's called DABIS. That has a, That's an acronym, and I'm not going to give you the long thing. Let's just know that the AI's name is DABIS. That that AI cannot be listed as the inventor of, um, in this case, it was this light beacon and a specialized beverage container. That's right. That's right. So how I'm really interested to hear how the Federal Circuit made that determination. I mean, there are so many questions here, but it's like, are they deciding what fundamentally makes you human or machine? Where does creativity (laughs) come from? That kind of stuff. Yeah. That would maybe be a slightly more exciting story than what the Fed Circuit actually had to do here. They not one little bit had to even get to that because the court specifically said it didn't have to do some abstract inquiry into the nature of invention or what rights AI should hold in our legal system. Instead, they could answer this one just by straight up reading the Patent Act, which has a clear definition of inventors as individuals. 
So the federal circuit explained that the legal precedent has interpreted individuals to refer to natural persons. So under that interpretation of the Patent Act, only human beings can be listed as inventors. Hmm. The lower court had found this already. It had upheld the patent office's rejection of patent applications for the two items allegedly invented by AI. And the Federal Circuit noted that the Patent Act uses personal pronouns, so himself, herself, to refer to the inventor, not itself. Wow. Um, They said that pointed toward the language meaning it has to be a person. (laughs) So they also went on to say that if Congress had wanted this to apply differently, they would have written it differently. And they could have written it so that non-human inventors could be considered, but that's not what they did. Oh, that's a very fascinating uh, way of of going about addressing this. It's the clean way. Yeah, it's the clean and straightforward way. I want to know how the AI feels about this. Is it sad? Um, Well, at the very least, the father of the AI was pretty upset. Um, Okay, fair. Thaler's attorney expressed a bunch of disappointment with this ruling. The attorney said that the federal circuit, quote, ignores the purpose of the Patent Act and the outcome that AI-generated inventions are now unpatentable in the United States. That is an outcome with real negative social consequences we do plan to appeal. So this isn't the last we'll probably hear of this, but this is a pretty definitive ruling from a high-level appellate court. During the course of the case, Thaler had argued that inventions generated by AI should be patentable in order to encourage innovation. That was the big argument, that you want innovation that's part of the purpose of the Patent Act, so you should let machines be inventors the same way you would people. But the court just flat out rejected that, saying those policy arguments are both speculative and they also are not based in the text of the Patent Act. And that's what they were um, interpreting here. They were reading the text of that act. So those arguments are kind of the ones, it's a classic thing where a court's like, hey, I hear you on that policy stuff, but uh, take that up with Congress. So that's where we are with that. Okay. And have I I seem to recall that other courts have looked into this, but are there courts like across the globe that are considering (laughs) this? Absolutely. This is probably what you're remembering from your prior coverage, that this has just come up again and again, basically based on this one guy who has tried to get patents for Dabas in many, many venues. So last month, the board that oversees the European Patent Office appeals held in another case that AI can't be listed as an inventor on patents. The UK has also rejected Thaler's patent applications. The country's intellectual property office refused to change the law to allow AI to be listed as an inventor. Thaler did have a brief win in Australia when a judge there said that AI could be an inventor, but that decision was ultimately overturned by an appellate court in Australia, so that became a loss. The only place where the machines are currently winning this battle is in South Africa, where the la- where last year Dabas was granted patents on the inventions we're talking about here. So, you know, loss in the war between man and machine almost everywhere for the machines, except South Africa. So it's a place to watch for that singularity. For all of our AI listeners who want to get their patents, now you know where to go. That's right. The world of professional golf has become a fractured one. 
Earlier this year, the PGA Tour suspended players who left the organization for lucrative opportunities to play in events hosted by the newly formed Live Golf Company, which is funded by the Saudi Arabian government. A group of those players has now sued the PGA Tour, claiming that its anti-competitive behavior violates antitrust laws. The PGA Tour responded, and earlier this week, a judge denied an opportunity for Live golfers to compete in the PGA Tour playoffs. But the case is in its very early stages. There's a lot to unpack. So joining us to help explain all of this is Joseph Hanna, a partner at Goldberg Sagala, who chairs the firm's sports and entertainment law practice. Joseph, thank you so much for joining us. Stephen, thanks for having me. What a time for professional golf. Uh, far from the sort of quiet sport that you might put on on a Saturday afternoon, you know, sit down on the couch and maybe doze off a little bit. This is high-level drama for the sport, so I'm very excited to talk to you about this. There's a lot to get into. But let's start with some of the, some of the basic structures of the PGA Tour. How does it operate as a business? So, Stephen, just like you mentioned, this is certainly not a Sunday at Augusta. We have a, a lot of uh, various buckets here of, of items to watch. Uh, it's such a conservative sport, and we're in the midst of a civil war. But in terms of how the PGA Tour operates, uh, it's registered with the IRS as a business league, which under Section 501c6 is an association of persons having some common business interest the purpose of which is to promote such common interest. So it is a non, it has a nonprofit status and it claims an exemption from federal and state taxes. And obviously the PGA Tour has become unique because as in recent years, other major sports leagues have surrendered this status. For example, Major League Baseball in 2007 and the NFL in 2015. Yeah, it's interesting to hear that the PGA has this special status because that plays in a lot to the claims that it is anti-competitive and it's using that status to further its own goals that, that are not good for the golf world writ large. It's also been investigated in the past for antitrust violations. I know that just a month ago, the Justice Department opened an investigation into whether the tour is in fact a monopoly. Can you speak to that and, and what's been alleged there? Sure, Amber. So the, the PGA Tour is a three-time antitrust champion it has been victorious on a Morse uh, Communications Corporation uh, claim that has been brought against them regarding real-time scoring, an antitrust lawsuit with the senior PGA Tour, a class action brought by the caddies. Uh, but in the early 90s, uh, the FTC found the PGA had violated antitrust laws uh, due to a law stipulating permission for a conflicting event release. So it has been uh, investigated in the past. And currently, as you mentioned, uh, the DOJ is investigating the PGA's uh, behavior as an illegal monopoly. So sort of in the, in the footsteps of that, you know, this has all been playing out simultaneously, right? Uh, Live Golf forms this, this new tour, and some of the players leave for very lucrative contracts. Um, some of them resign their PGA Tour cards. And some of them left and played in other events, which is against the PGA Tour handbook rules. You know, they're all a they're all a pool of independent contractors, but they do all sort of operate under this umbrella of the PGA Tour and they can pool their media rights and then sell those rights to tournaments and broadcasters and whatnot. And some of those some of the players that left for uh, live golf. Uh, you know, violated these handbook rules. And so the tour responded with a pretty heavy hand. 
and suspended those players. And this sort of brings us to this lawsuit that was filed uh, last Wednesday. And I was wondering if we could just kind of unpack some of the claims in that lawsuit. It was 100 pages long. And, you know, I think uh, at, at first blush, I think there was a little bit of there were some anecdotes in there that kind of raised some eyebrows about how the PGA Tour operates sort of as the only game in town. So, Stephen, parts of those complaints that was filed are pretty uh, bombshell-type headlines. Uh, for example, the tour has employed its dominance to craft an arsenal of anti-competitive restraints. Some very strong words in there. Anytime someone says arsenal of something, you're <laughs> like, wait, what? <laughs> and... Uh, the, the complaint is, it, it clearly portrays the tour as very vindictive. The tour, uh, quoting from there, the tour has complete, uh, repeatedly threatened its members with devastating consequences if they uh, join Live Golf. Uh, the career-threatening bans on Mickelson, DeChambeau, and others. Um, orchestrating a group uh, boycott uh, within the European tour. Uh, so, and then they focus their efforts uh, in the document, uh, specifically on PGA Tour Commissioner Jay Monahan, and Jay Monahan has come out very strongly uh, with strong words of "You're either with us or you're against us," and, and there's no gray area there. So, it's the focus on him is that we're the PGA Tour, and he specifically purposefully, inconsistently um, allowed golfers to compete in other tournaments, and he's frozen out live golf. And then their major argument, um, which uh, we'll talk about uh, shortly with Judge Freeman, is that the consumers are no better off uh, with tour rules that restrict competition. And that's the focus and the shift towards uh, what Amber referenced earlier in terms of the antitrust argument and focus that these uh, players have uh, brought to the forefront. Right. Yeah, what you're telling us there really does, I mean, if you take the complaint on face value, it does paint a portrait that sounds anti-competitive. But obviously, the PGA sees it differently. What have we seen so far in terms of response from them? And then we can get into this actual fight over the temporary restraining order for these particular golfers. So the the PGA's strongest defense, um, which they came out with, and, and we've heard from a number of players, uh, Billy Horschel, Freddie Couples, Justin Thomas, uh, Rory McIlroy has essentially become the de facto spokesperson for the PGA Tour, is that Liv's success and ability to draw big names shows that they have not been prevented from entering the market at all. And it frankly understates the fact that the PGA Tour isn't a monopoly. And that ultimately is what played out and is what we saw during the TRO uh, hearing and frankly with Judge Freeman's comments. Well, let's dig into that. Like, let's get right into that TRO hearing, because I think there's a lot to unpack about what the sides were saying there and how it resulted this this past week. Yeah, so I would say that's round ones in the books. And uh, the the PGA Tour won round one. And the, the highlight, the theme of that was irreparable harm. And Judge Freeman certainly found that there was no irreparable harm to the three live golfers and their ability to participate in the FedEx Cup. Yeah, I, I want to I talk about and unpack those arguments a little bit, because I think one thing that has been discussed pretty widely um, after this lawsuit was filed, and then the PGA Tour responded, you know, you, you sort of have like, like what you were talking about. 
one of the main arguments coming from Liv is that the PGA is anti-competitive. But Liv exists. It's a rival tour, and it exists, and it's doing pretty well. It's taken quite a few players away from the PGA Tour. It's not making any money, but it's certainly growing. And then you have these players who are suing the PGA Tour saying that, you know, if you don't let us play in these playoffs, um, we're essentially going to lose financial opportunities. And so this kind of played out a little bit in the courtroom. There was a lot of discussion and the judge had a lot of different comments, heard a lot of different things and, and made some comments about it sure seems like live golf is doing pretty well, you know? And so I guess just talk about that a little bit in terms of like what you heard from the judge in terms of these, it's just kind of hard to, to hear that and think, I, I, th I think a, a lay person would hear that and think, how can the PGA tour be anti-competitive when there is a rival league that's doing well and these players are making money, not losing financial opportunities. What did you hear from the judge and what do you think about that? So Judge Freeman's kind of most powerful statement is that this is an emergency of the player's own making. So they brought this upon themselves, Taylor Gooch, Matt Jones, and Hudson Swafford. And she then takes kind of that theme of irreparable harm and emergency of the player's own making. and then comes down with some very strong words that Live Golf will have to pay attention to as this lawsuit continues. Namely, Live Golf is still holding tournaments. They've attracted several of the top players in the world. Dustin Johnson, yeah. Bryson DeChambeau, a number of great Ryder Cup players for the years like Sergio Garcia and Henrik Stenson. I think she, she was presented with evidence of that and called it remarkable during the hearing. So it, was, it clearly made an impact on her. And then one of the strongest pieces of evidence that came to light that was highlighted is that Live Golf is projected that it'll have a 20% market share by next year. So that just obviously highlights their ability to be a competitive force uh, against the PGA Tour. So the, in her eyes and in, in her determination, the PGA Tour is hardly a monopoly if a competitor is going to have a 20% market share. And it'll be interesting how it all plays out in terms of the number of players that will join the, the Live Golf Tour uh, because of the cap. Uh, will they be dropping lesser players to add additional big names in as projected at the end of the FedEx Cup, like the names of a Mark Leishman or a Cam Smith? And, and finally, one of the key points that she referenced uh, and, and highlighted was the uh, ability of Live Golf and their contracts that they're possibly even more restrictive than the PGA Tour and that the players have to play in all the live events. They'll be forced to play in Asian Tour events. So if you are playing uh, in a league with more restrictive contracts than you currently were living under for, for years, and in Phil Mickelson's case, uh, multiple decades, how can that be a monopoly? Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting point at this stage, but I know we are early days. I'm racking my brain to say, you know, are we heading toward the back nine? But I don't even think we're that far into this case yet. <laughs> it's so good, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So but it is early days. So I'm very interested in what we see coming next, because deciding that these golfers are still suspended for the reasons we've discussed is one matter. But uh, there's a lot more that 
has to happen next to really sort out all of these issues of competition law. So what are you looking for as sort of the next big thing we should all be watching and sort of the longer term future of this big war between these two battling leagues? So if we start at the most basic level uh, in terms of the impact of the TRO denial moving forward, uh, Gooch, Jones and Swafford are ineligible for the FedEx Cup playoffs. So that's that's immediate. And they're they're jeopardizing their odds for qualifying for majors next year. So that's number one. There is a highlight in there for Liv uh, and that Judge Freeman did know that they did make a compelling case. Uh, So the larger antitrust case. and it was referenced in there, could potentially be brought to trial as early as next year. And as we all know, that's not going to happen. So in all likelihood, probably much later in 2024, 2025. In terms of the PGA Tour, and Jay Monahan continues to refer to Live Golf as the Saudi Golf League rather than calling it uh, Live Golf. He continues to argue uh, that the tour would suffer irreparable reputational damage if it was to associate with the Saudi-backed golfers. And it would be highly hypocritical since the PGA Tour golfers previously played in Saudi international golf events uh, when the PGA Tour just viewed Saudi Arabia as a, as a lucrative new market. So he's obviously moving further away from live golf as, a, as opposed to trying to kind of unifying it. Uh, in terms of live golf, uh, they have a number of issues, right? So they lost round one of the lawsuit. Uh, they continue to be at war with uh, Jay Monahan, uh, and we have a number of the live golfers coming out and essentially attacking, namely Greg Norman, essentially attacking the PGA Tour. Uh, Greg Norman and the PGA and Live Golf earlier today uh, started their attack on Tiger Woods, arguably the most famous golfer of all time and saying that uh, he's been doing the bidding on behalf of the PGA Tour to destroy Live Golf. Well, that that actually is interesting. I kind of want to talk about the players themselves. It seems like a lot of this, you know, we may have two leagues that are fighting, but the proxies are the players themselves that have to make a choice about who they're backing, essentially. It seems like with denying this restraining order, the judge is setting up a situation where they do have to pick a lane. You kind of have to pick where, where you want to go here. Do you want to go with Live or do you want to stick with the PGA? And the PGA doesn't seem to be backing down at all from making that a choice that players have to indeed actively make. And, and Amber, that's a great point. Uh, and when the TRO uh, decision came down, Billy Horschel, a uh, former FedEx Cup champion, said that he believes the live players are brainwashed. And, and that's a very strong statement, right? These are, are guys that he's, he's golfed with for years. But he also went on to say that the PGA Tour players and the staff of the PGA Tour feel they felt vindicated. And so they've, they've clearly made this very personal. And like Jay Monahan said, and I, I mentioned earlier, either you're with us or you're against us. Yeah, I mean, that's a very specific stance to take, right? Because sometimes in competition suits, outside of the context of sports, perhaps, you'll have companies that are fighting over something like this and they find some middle ground because these suits can run on for years but it doesn't seem like either side wants to find that here. No, and, and Freddie Couples, who, who's uh, one of the coolest golfers of all time, uh, said he's glad they're gone. He said this idea or notion that if you play loud music and you all drink, it makes golf cool. This is not what they're about. 
And that's obviously a, a very interesting take and that Freddie Couples is a, a major champion and, and one of the more respected, well-known golfers who has been a President's Cup uh, captain and has relationships with players on both sides. And just is kind of saying, hey, look it, they're suing us. And by us, we're the PGA Tour. And Justin Thomas is saying they're suing us. And Rory McIlroy say they're against us. And us is that strong pronoun of this group of the PGA Tour. And what's interesting, and it certainly uh, kind of cuts against what most employment lawyers would say, is that in an August 3rd letter uh, to the PGA Tour players, uh, Monaghan encouraged golfers to speak out publicly on the issue, as opposed to uh, most employers would always tell their employees, like, if there's active litigation going on, just button it up and we'll make the comments and they'll be very official. Yeah. Uh, So that's why, once again, your de facto spokesperson, Rory McIlroy and Justin Thomas, they're just, they're firing on all cylinders and they're really kind of being as transparent as possible and and speaking their, their opinion and not shying away from any pushback or feedback or frankly, any friendships. And, And you have to remember it was, just last year that a lot of these players were on the same very victorious U.S. Ryder Cup team, uh, the DeChambeau's and the, and the Dustin Johnson's, along with uh, the Justin Thomas's and, and others. So it's been a, a quite a civil war that we're seeing uh, play out. Yeah. And it'll be very interesting uh, in that the PGA Tour is hoping that if their players actively speak out against live, it'll proactively prevent more departures and that it's almost putting fear in the players that if you leave, uh, you're not coming back because you've chosen a side and you're against us. Picking a fight with Tiger Woods is certainly a choice. So we'll see how that plays out for them as well. This has been really fascinating talking about this with you, Joseph. And um been a pleasure talking golf. And we got a few golf puns in there, too. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much for all the information on this. Stephen and Amber, I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Dinner show is something offbeat, and Haley, I would like to talk about Wikipedia. Awesome. Let's okay. do it. So, when you think of Wikipedia, are you like me? You know, for I think everybody knows what Wikipedia is, it's a very popular website, but you know, if for anybody who's maybe forgotten or hasn't looked for a while, it's online crowdsourced encyclopedia. It can be updated by basically anybody. So when you think of that, do you think of the kind of like stereotypical thing where students everywhere just sort of use it as a shortcut to pull up some information for a research paper or to like brush up on a topic before class without really having to do any work? Yes. Also, like wasting time falling into Wikipedia holes where you just read about some bizarre topic that you didn't know existed. Yeah. I have definitely done the Wikipedia hole of just reading and reading because you get fascinated by stuff and keep clicking related links. Everything's linked. But for full disclosure, I never got to use Wikipedia the way that some students out there do where they pad out that research paper because, and uh, this is the sad part of this story, I am too old. (laughs) It was not a thing when I was in college. So I didn't get to use it that way. Well, I... 
It was around when I was in school, but we were definitely banned from using it. Well, uh, turns out students aren't the only ones who may rely a teeny bit too much on that website. There was a recently published academic stress test on court decision making where researchers found out that Wikipedia entries have a significant impact on judges' behavior and their legal decisions. Oh, wow. Okay, my first reaction to this is, I'm not a judge. You are not a judge. But in journalism, if I were to turn in a story that was sourced from Wikipedia, that would not fly. Well, judges are human, Haley, and (laughs) even a judge likes a shortcut, and they do have busy dockets. I'm making a lot of excuses, but let me... Anyway, yeah, let's... Yeah, I'll tell you the parameters of the study, and you kind of make of it what you will, listeners. It's a team of researchers led by an MIT scientist. They concluded that a group of judges in Ireland, so this was a study in Ireland, I want to make that clear, that they were not only reading Wikipedia articles as methodological shortcuts on a bunch of legal cases, but they were also citing those matters more frequently in their own decisions. So it kind of incepted to them. After they read it, they started Mm. citing them more Basically, here's what the team did. They created a bunch of Wikipedia articles about Irish Supreme Court decisions and put them right there into Wikipedia because, again, this is a crowdsourced platform. Um, So the addition of the Wikipedia article they found generated a 25% bump in judicial citations to those cases from the sort of the time before. They were comparing it to the time before those articles existed before the study started. The researchers also found what they called a a strong pool of evidence that the courts were drawing directly from the language of the articles of these unknown authors on Wikipedia. And a lot of that language contextualized the court decisions. And um, they were using that contextualization to support their legal reasoning. So that doesn't seem great. And the researchers thought it didn't seem great either. They wrote this in the paper. At best, this risks inexpert analysis At worst, it exposes judgments to bias and tampering of external actors. Yeah, this is rather concerning. What does the judge community say about this? Are other judges like, yeah, of course, like we all use Wikipedia. We're busy. (laughs) Well, no, I mean, I don't think any judge has really come out and been like, you know what? Wikipedia is the best. Don't worry (laughs) about it. That's good. But it's clear that, I mean, again, they're humans and they're also really busy and, you know, It's hard to avoid Wikipedia these days. I think it's the fourth or fifth most popular website in the whole world. So what judges have said, at least some of them, many around the world have in the past, but even before the study, objected to citing Wikipedia in opinions. And our own Andrew Strickler wrote a pretty cool feature for us about some examples in the United States where either jurors or lawyers or other people involved in a case at some stage have relied on Wikipedia and judges have gone out of their way to say in various orders and opinions that they weren't happy about that, that they don't think this is a reliable source. So there is a movement that direction too. But I brought up this story really just overall to open up something we maybe as a legal community should be discussed more that Wikipedia, we all kind of agree, can sometimes be great, but does have uncertain reliability. So maybe since Wikipedia is so ubiquitous, what we need is an easy alternative that is a source of legal knowledge that's more authoritative. So judges don't feel like their big choice here, if they want a quick answer, is just to go over to Wikipedia. Yeah. I mean, 
They could also come to law360.com. Uh, I'm glad you did it, Haley, because if you hadn't, I would <laughs> I'm have. I'm so sorry. Um, sorry to know, everyone. Can't- hey, it's not just Law360. It's all of the Lexus platforms. We've got some stuff over here and it's vetted. <laughs> but aside from plugging our own company, I do think it opens up, you know, I like I said at the top of this, I usually think of Wikipedia problems as like something going on in schools. Like, you know, I've got a cousin who's an English teacher and she sometimes will be like, found another one where here's a paragraph ripped straight from the Wikipedia article. I don't want us to have to start saying that about court decisions. That doesn't seem great. So um, definitely just something everybody out there should be mindful of. We've had a great show today, and I'd like to thank my co-host, Haley Knopf. Thank you, Amber. I'd also like to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, especially Steve this week for the lift on the main segment today, and our guest, Joseph Hanna. Our contributing reporters this week are Bonnie Esslinger, Ryan Davis, and Andrew Strickler. And music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se and anything you heard today, we'd love it if you left us five stars in a written review wherever you're listening. That really helps new people find our show. And if you want to read more about any of the many topics we've covered today, that's where you go over to our website, law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you back here next week.